0: Welcome to Away from the Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away from the Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty good, Richie. What's going on with you? Well, I've been playing a game. Well, it's an older game. You know, Nintendo just announced the other day that they were going to re-release the NES, you know, the original NES that we had when we were kids, and they're going to have 30 games on it. Now, it's going to be a smaller one. You're not going to be able to add games, and it's going to be available in November. So I got the bug to play some of those old games again. Uh, What I did is I popped in uh, a game that I had, and I haven't played very much of it, but it's called the Ultimate NES Remix, where you play short snippets of the, these old games that we had when we were kids, like Super Mario Brothers and uh, The Legend of Zelda and The Adventure of Link and Metroid and Donkey Kong and all these games, but you only play in short snippets at a time. So that's what I've been up to the past week or so, playing the Ultimate NES Remix. Nice. What about you, man? What you been
1: doing? Well, for the past couple of weeks, um, we've been actually house hunting, and oh. just yesterday we decided to put an offer on a house that we really like. Dude
0: congratulations
1: man Yeah, thanks man so um so we'll see how it goes right so you know it's a house in uh, sunrise florida um you know really like the house nice home nice community um nice school zone which is important to us so
0: you know we'll, we'll see what happens right well good luck with that man um come back and tell us all about uh, your experience of buying a home here in crazy south florida yeah i'll definitely let you guys know how that goes
1: um I can definitely tell you I've, I've been learning a lot about how the real estate market works and it's it's interesting to say the least.
0: Yeah, you know, you think of LA, San Francisco, New York City and Miami, they're all kind of different experience buying a house than I think the rest of the country is. Yeah, that that is for sure.
1: That is for sure. <laughs>
0: So uh we we uh we've been doing a giveaway yeah, we have. of the talk python course. I think we finally have a winner, right? Right. So after two weeks
1: of um of waiting, so we finally decided to pick a winner for the course. Now, for everybody that's listening, the winner is going to get access to Michael Kennedy's Python Jumpstart course. It's an online course where he pretty much just goes through the basics of learning the Python language. And our winner today is Mr. Oscar Barufa. I'm really hoping I'm saying his last name right. But Mr. Oscar Barufa. And Oscar, his bio says that he's exploring data science, entrepreneurship, and parenting. So congratulations, Oscar. We'll reach out to you and make sure that you get everything you need to get access to the course. Excellent. Excellent. So we have uh, some events coming up, man. Yeah, we do. So first up on the calendar, we have Code on the Beach. Now, that's going to be in Jacksonville, Florida, August 12th through 14th. And it's pretty much a software engineering conference where we cover all kinds of interesting topics, you know, from databases to web development to mobile development. And guess what? It's actually on the beach. So it's a really great time. Very family-friendly event. You know, Richie and I have gone for the past few years. You know, I've spoken. Richie's spoken. Um, you know, I brought my family. Richie's brought his. And, you know,
0: we've always had a good time. Yep. And that's going to be on Jacksonville Beach. And the cost of that conference is three ninety nine. Three ninety
1: nine. And next up we have on August 23rd, Tech Night at the Ballpark. Yeah. Now, Tech Night at the Ballpark is one of your favorite events, right, Richard?
0: Oh, it's absolutely my favorite event. Tech Night at the Ballpark is where it's a whole bunch of technical folk uh, descend on Marlins Park in Miami. And it's going to be held on August 23rd, where it's going to be a night of networking and hors d'oeuvres. And, of course, we have the game. The, the world champion royals will be in town facing the Marlins. And it's at a really good price, too. So it's $15 per ticket. And if you've ever tried to get a ticket to a ball game, you know it costs a lot more than $15. So we've got it uh, at a really great price. Uh, Lots of people uh, usually show up from all the way from West Palm Beach. And I think even from last year, we saw a bunch of people from Tampa come come on down, come over for the event. So Tech Night at the Ballpark. You can get your tickets at technighttheballpark.com. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Kyle Simpson. Kyle is an evangelist of the open web. He's passionate about all things JavaScript.
1: He writes books, he teaches JavaScript, speaks, and he contributes to the world of open source. That's
0: a great bio, man. Short, concise, sweet. Yeah, man. Straight to the point and, you know, just keep it moving. This episode recorded on June 9th, 2016. And now our conversation with Kyle Simpson. And now, away from the keyboards feature conversation. Who exactly is
1: Kyle
2: Simpson? Uh, So first off, a lot of people that know me actually know me through my online identity, which is Getify. Um, And so (laughs) so a lot of times when I go to conferences, um, I actually ask them to just put Getify on the badge instead of Kyle Simpson. Nice. Because I'm not as as well known there by that name. But whichever way you like to call me. Yeah, that's me. So um, yeah, who am I? I am... uh, I'm a guy that made an early bet that JavaScript was going to be a thing a long, long before uh, a lot of people thought that it was true, and many people thought I was kind of crazy, but I started um, specializing in JavaScript as a developer, had encountered it for many years, but started specializing in it, and um, spent a lot of years doing JavaScript-only or JavaScript-heavy development um and a few years back, I'd say four or five years back, I started to realize that I had a deeper desire to give back besides just the code that I could write. Of course, I'd done a lot of conference talks and open source development, but I wanted to give back more, and um, and I got an opportunity kind of out of the blue to try out some teaching and um, realized literally the first time that is how I want to give back. So for the last four years or so, I've been all in on the notion of teaching JavaScript. And uh, the biggest lesson that I learned there actually isn't about the language, but about the practice and the uh, principle of teaching, which is that there's a circular relationship between teaching and learning. So to be a teacher, most effectively, I have to learn all the time and the best way to learn is to actually teach others what i've learned so it uh, just goes in a virtuous cycle and that kind of defines who i am these days so i kind of
1: find it interesting all of your branding everywhere is getify it's getify online on
2: twitter i'm sure
1: all of your emails are getify so where did that branding or that name come from originally
2: it's uh i wish it was a more interesting story but i'll be happy to share Uh, 2006, late 2006, early 2007, um, there was a a set of TV commercials for, I don't even know if anybody remembers, might be dating me a little bit, but ask.com, the search engine. Yeah. I used to use Ask. Okay. (laughs) So ask.com for whatever crazy reason, did some TV commercials for a brief period of time. And the theme of those TV commercials was get affection, like getting things and being satisfied with them. And I remember distinctly the first time I saw that TV commercial, the verb form of that word came into my head, Getify. And I started uh, thinking about that and realized that it was an interesting and unique way to describe how I saw myself. Um, I wasn't a teacher at the time, but of course as a developer and a public, you know, an advocate and evangelist for web technology, I saw my role in the community is going and getting information, going and getting uh, knowledge, and making it useful and accessible to people. Um, so Getify kind of stuck as, uh, first as my side company name, and when you're a single person company, it's indistinguishable from your own personal brand, so it eventually just morphed into my personal brand, and it also helped that nobody else was using that, so I was able to register it everywhere which was nice.
1: <laughs> so I definitely want to talk about your teaching and some of the other things you're doing. But before we even get there, what made you decide to make a bet on JavaScript?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, so, of course, for quite a long time, I my, my roots in JavaScript actually go back to somewhere around the 1998-1999 time frame, really early on, actually, in its lifespan. And it was a pretty rough... Uh, I mean the language itself had its problems, but it was also a pretty rough ecosystem for JavaScript at the time. The web was just barely starting to, to come into something and it would very very not much uh, resemble what we what we know the web to be today. But um, you know I had to do a little bit of JavaScript stuff on the earliest websites that I was building in 1998, 1999. So I, like most people, Kind of just treated it as a, as a little toy tool with something to kind of, you know, make boxes pop up and mouse cursors change and stuff. But it was interesting. And, and I had a programmer background from well before that. So I could appreciate the ability to actually write code. I liked that idea as opposed to what I saw a lot of people at the time doing, just using WYSIWYG editors and dropping things in and not knowing what they were doing. As a programmer, I liked the fact that. I could understand the code, so when I used Dreamweaver uh, as my editor, I had the whole UI wissywig thing turned off because I didn't want MM underscore you know function names all over my code. I wanted to write that stuff myself. Right, right. Um, so I I had the early um, exposure to it, and and I'm not alone. There was a lot of people that saw it back then, and I also had similar opinions to most people, which was, eh, you know, it's not really that serious. It's it's something to get something done, but I I I wish I could say that I predicted what the web would be, but I I didn't see it at the time. So it didn't get a lot of serious thought from me. And I revisited it more seriously in about 2000, 2001, which is still pretty early on in the web, but it had definitely come into its own. We had, uh, you know, some early versions of IE that were really taking hold. I think that was IE4 at the time, if I recall. Um, So you could start to do some more practical stuff with JavaScript. And, um... I, I was working on a project at my university. Uh, as a matter of fact, the page was basically a site to show parking maps to students so that they knew where they could park, if they had X, you know, the green permit or the red permit or whatever. So I, I wanted to create a little interactive thing with the maps and let you click on stuff, just informational. And I had to you know, get, get more familiar and more comfortable with JavaScript than I had before. And it had changed, it had matured a little bit. Um, so I, I grew some more respect for it. I actually built something pretty pretty decent and reasonable with it. Fast forward another few years, um, and a couple of my jobs in like open LAMP stack development, I'm out of college at this point in open LAMP stack development, meaning PHP is a lot what was happening on the back end, but you always had to have some sort of interactivity on the front end. And so I had some jobs uh, early on um doing that. And one of my first big jobs as a as a real developer uh, was building a timesheet and payroll management application for a biotech company. And I did the entire back end I did the whole app myself, single developer thing. Uh, and the back end I did in PHP and the front end I did in JavaScript. And that was a lot of code. So uh, over time I began to appreciate JavaScript more, and um, I, I treated it as a as a real tool. By that point, it wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say it was my favorite tool because I could get a lot more done I perceived in PHP at the time. But you know, it was definitely an important part of the tool stack. Now, by two thousand five is around the time where things started to change for me because the jobs that started to come about were jobs. It, it started to be a thing where a company could theoretically hire. A UI developer, somebody who was only going to work on the front end versus wanting strictly full stack development. So, some of the jobs that I got in that time frame really did have me focusing very much on the front end. And, and specifically, one that I took in 2007, um, I was uh, working almost exclusively in the front end. And uh, at the time, we needed to, uh, this application that we were working on we need to be able to embed part of our application in somebody else's web application. And uh, in 2006, 2007, cross-domain communication was really, really wild west. There was no such even remote hope of something like uh, cross-domain, you know, cross-origin sharing, stuff like we have today. So uh, I was tasked with figuring out how to do that. And I knew a little bit of flash, and I knew some JavaScript and I figured out that I could do it uh, with Flash. And I got the idea to build a library. This is the first time I'd really done any kind of, more than just application development, doing some sort of tool development. But I got the idea to build a library around this Flash file that would allow any random cross-domain Ajax calls. Uh, And so what I decided was I was going to uh, write a library that exposed an interface that looked exactly like the normal XML HTTP request object, but under the covers, it had, it used a hidden flash file to make those calls. And in the process of writing this library, uh, I learned a lot about JavaScript. I would open up source code for frameworks like some early versions of Mootools and jQuery. They had just kind of come on the scene within the previous year or two, but I opened up those source code and I was like, wow, this is way more than I ever thought people did with JavaScript. And there were things like the dollar sign symbol that I'd never really seen used before (laughs) in JavaScript code. And and I realized very quickly how much I didn't know about JavaScript. And rather than terrifying me, that fascinated me. And so I read books and I read source code, and I said, "I, I think I'm gonna get serious about JavaScript. And uh, so in 2007, basically, I said, this is what I want to do with my career. I want to be the guy who understands JavaScript better than than most. And I'm not going to take jobs or, or go off on things that divert me from that. And I'm going to keep learning it until I feel like I know it. And at the time, I didn't think it would take that long. But we are nine years later, and uh, I'm still learning JavaScript. <laughs> so I'm still at it.
1: Nice. And you actually touch upon a theme that we we speak about every now and again in the show is to really just find your focus, right, and and hone in on that skill and develop it and develop it until, you know, you now, the student, have become the expert, right?
2: I'm not sure that uh, I would take the label expert, to be honest with you. I don't know if there are experts. I wouldn't call myself one. Um, No, why not? But, uh, well... So, I don't think mastery of something is actually attainable. I don't think knowledge is a point that you reach. I view it more like the mathematical notion of asymptotes. Uh, something that you never reach, but that you get closer and closer to. Right. Um, so, for me, the knowledge curve, I have been approaching more and more understanding of JavaScript, but really... The only difference between me and a listener who started JavaScript last week is I'm just a little further along the knowledge curve. I've had more experience with it. I've seen more of its ins and outs. And I think really the only difference is that I might be uncommonly adept at asking deeper questions and not giving up when I got a surface answer. But uh, I don't think that makes me an expert because um, the I guess my notion of expert is somebody who uh... has enough experience not to make mistakes and has enough experience uh... that they're not surprised often and i'm still learning i'm still figuring you know today literally today realized something about javascript that i hadn't known before so um, you know i i'm still learning and that's probably the best label for me
1: you know one of the things that i've heard people say before is if you take that approach that you're taking, right, and you're not considering yourself an expert or a master or anything like that, using that type of mentality actually makes people feel a little bit more included, so to speak, right? And it actually makes you a little bit more approachable. You know, I remember we were talking to a friend of ours. He, he made the point of saying, when you write, for instance, job descriptions and you use certain keywords like expert and best and master and that type of stuff, it actually deters some people away. So actually I found that pretty interesting. The development world that we're in today, you know, we should strive for more inclusion. And I know that's something that you speak about a lot too is is trying to make people feel more included and, you know, have more diversity inside of the communities and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um not not necessarily the way I would have articulated it before, but I think you're right that so my perspective is simply um the best way for me to teach, as I said earlier, is, uh, or the best way for me to learn is to teach and the best way for me to teach is to learn that circular relationship. So what I think from the perspective of somebody who did a lot of conference talks and from the some perspective of somebody who regularly stands up in front of people and teaches what I know, I think that the best approach for me is to not stand up and talk about something that I think I am the absolute authority on, but rather to stand up much earlier in the process and start talking about my journey of where I'm at so far, what I have learned so far, and to bring people along with me. So, for example, um, I made this quip a while back, but I, the, the longer I've ruminated on it, the more I believe it, um, that, you know, decent or okay talks are about the speaker and their personality. Really good talks are about the content, something great, some great, you know, uh, observation or insight about some technology or pattern or something. But the really best talks are the ones that are about the audience. And I deeply believe that and I wish I had been better in my time, my seven years in the conference circuit. I wish I had given more of those talks that were more about the audience and less about me and less about the technology. But I believe that's how I teach is to bring people along on that journey, help them get a little longer, a little further along on that knowledge curve. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right that I think that does present a more welcoming tone. I hope that it does. I think it presents a more welcoming tone uh, because people don't feel like they have some prerequisite before they can get in a conversation. I'm amazed when people come up to me and say that they've they've seen me at five conferences before but they were always too nervous to come up and say hi until this time and I'm like what? What? Like it doesn't, it shouldn't be that way and there's a lot of perceptive barriers. So anything that we can do to tear those down is important and I do try to carry myself off as somebody who's just passionate about uh, learning better and, and deepening that perspective. Sometimes that means telling people the things that I've learned that I think they should do and sometimes it means, hey, I've learned that this thing, yeah, it's not not as good as the hype train tells us. But I think uh, all of that contributes to, to looking at things a, in a deeper way. Which is certainly a theme of my, you know, the books and talks and teaching that I do. Uh, you touched on in, in you know, diversity and, and you're right. That is a, a really deeply a meaningful thing to me. Uh, those of you that aren't, you know, you're listening to a podcast. So I don't know if you've seen me before, but I'm your regular old white dude. Um, and there's an awful lot of different people that I've been able to encounter and I've been deeply privileged to be able to encounter people that look differently than me, that sound differently than me, that come from entirely different world experiences than me. And I have realized that as much as I would like to consider myself to be open-minded, um, that I can't conceive of the differences beyond a certain uh, distance from my own circle. Um, and it is completely unacceptable for my own ethical, you know, stance. It's unacceptable for me to conduct myself in a way that says, if you're not in my sphere of understanding, then you must be different or wrong or or less than me. As a matter of fact, I have to conduct myself in a way that that treats everyone, even the people that I can't identify with at all. And there's a lot of people like that. I have to treat those people as, as valuable as myself. And so what I'm getting at here is that what we need for the web, if this web is being built for seven and a half billion people that are in so many different places that are so different than we can possibly even imagine, and yet this this tiny one one thousandth of a percent of the world calls themselves a web developer uh, you know probably less than one one thousandth of a percent, but just this tiny little percentage and unfortunately very heavily biased towards the white dude kind of, kind of, uh, view of the world, we're not, uh, we're not capable of understanding how that web is being experienced by a lot of the world, a lot of the world. And so instead of going after this, uh, this notion of diversity, like I need to have every single person and that, that starts to treat every single person or every single group as a As a token, like, okay, I've checked that check mark, now I'll check this. That's not the way to go. We need to conduct ourselves with an ethic of empathy. I empathy to me is not I understand your situation and I feel for you. It is I can't understand your situation and that makes me feel for you even more deeply. And that that is something that I'm trying to do more of and and to encourage and challenge other people to conduct themselves similarly.
1: Every time I have a diversity conversation, I always feel it's important that we almost define very lightly what diversity is. You know, I know in in casual conversation, a lot of people might just think, oh, diversity means that we need more black people in the office, right? Or we need more this this color of people in the office, right? But when I think about diversity, I know I think about... You know, I want people from different experiences, right? Maybe they from different cultures and from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, you know, and different experiences in life, right? And not just necessarily the shade of, you know, the rainbow that you, have, you happen to represent at the time. If you can use a simple example of, you could be a white guy from... Some other country. You could be a white guy from Africa, right? But let's say you're on a development team and you can say, hey, well, having that mindset of... We've had different experiences, and so we're now approaching the problem in a different way. We're all seeing the problem in a different way, but now we can all collaborate and come together and make that much better of an experience for our end users.
2: I think you're, uh, I think you're on the right track, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of systemic problems that we have in our society, and I do not put forth myself as somebody who knows any solutions to those things, but I do think that talking to people and talking to with people about these sorts of things is the only way we're ever going to get anybody to find those solutions and a lot of times these are difficult and sometimes even awkward conversations and we'd rather not have those so we just don't really talk about it much and I think we ought to talk about it a lot more I think um, those that follow me have known that I, I have taken a very public stand on this notion of privilege awareness trying to be uh, not looking at you and saying that is your privilege because that's not my place, but looking at myself and saying there are a lot of things that I've had that are privilege that gave me a, a head start. And the person sitting to my right and the person sitting to my left had a very different path to get to that same room that day. Uh, some of them might have had to work less, but some of them might have had to work way, way harder than I did. Some of them might have had challenges that I can't even imagine. So one of the steps towards uh, being able to uh, work effectively with these other other folks around me whether that be literally at a conference or uh, literally on a development team or just sort of virtually being a good community member one of the best ways to do that I think is to start taking stock of our own story the places where uh, and that doesn't diminish the work that we do I know that Everybody listening has, has put in a lot of effort and a lot of work to, to achieve the success they have. So it's not meant to diminish those things, but to say uh, somewhere along the way, you might have gotten a break that somebody else didn't, and just to take stock of that and say, I recognize that was a thing. I didn't have to grow up in a household that uh, questioned this. I didn't have to grow up in a place where I wasn't sure if I was going to make it home safe. I didn't have to, you know, there's so many things that we can, if we probe ourselves, we can say. That was a privilege of mine. And I know there must be people that didn't have that privilege. And I know there must be people that, that there must be angles on privilege that I can't even imagine. You're, you're right. It's not just about skin color, gender, uh, sexual persuasion. It's not just about those common things that we write laws about and have, you know, big arguments about. There's a lot of subtle stuff. Like I didn't have to grow up with a dad that, uh, didn't ever think that I was worth anything, didn't ever think that I was gonna measure up. I had a dad, personally, that believed in my potential and he was raising me to to soar and to succeed. So a lot of people didn't have that. Um, so those are there's a lot of places that we can take stock of and I think those things do help us try to develop some empathy. So if you're looking at building a team uh, at work or in the community, or you're just looking at collaborating with people, I don't think you want to go through and try to tick those boxes and say, well, I got the one black guy and I got the one woman and I got the one this and the one that. No, I don't think that's the effective way. And I also don't think it's effective. Um, I hear this a lot uh, when people talk about interviewing, you know, to, to have somebody come be part of a team. They always talk about, quote, unquote, do they fit with the team? That's a problem, I think, actually. Um, if you keep reinforcing... If you keep adding people to the team and only people that you add to the team are people that already fit with the team, you're going to keep reinforcing that same echo chamber. There's a whole lot of structural reasons why that echo chamber powerfully biases against a whole bunch of people. And that is that is not okay. So as a matter of fact, I think we might want to do the opposite. You might want to try to hire somebody that's kind of different from the team fit. Um, and so you're not looking to hire a person that checks every one of these checkboxes, but you're looking for people that have a track record of proving that they can go outside of themselves and that they can be tolerant and empathetic, um, and respectful of people that have entirely different ways of approaching the world. That's the, that's the way to build a good team, a good group project, whatever, uh, when you're trying to collect people together to get something done.
1: What do you think it's so hard for us to have this conversation,
2: you know, as people in the United States and as people across the world, like why is, why is
1: this such a difficult conversation to have?
2: I guess the first instinct that I have is that um, I think part of our human nature is to say, um, you yeah, know, I touched on it just a moment ago. Uh, To want to try to step up and defend our own, um, you know, through ego, defend our own success as being something that we earned. We don't like it when there's any suggestion that we got something for free. And uh, we like to remind, make sure everybody remembers the success I have is because of me. It's because I, I put in the work. I did all the learning. I did all the this, this, this. And anytime a conversation starts to veer towards, eh, maybe, maybe you did do some work, but you also probably had some structural reason, you know, there were parts of society that just made it more likely for you to exceed, succeed at that. Well, then you start challenging people's identity. A lot of people put their identity in the things they've been able to accomplish. And I've certainly been ridiculously guilty of that in, in many many points in my life, many points in my career, wrapping up my identity in the things that I'm able to accomplish, as opposed to wrapping my identity around the way that I'm able to relate to people. And this goes uh, again. A lot of the things I'm saying are not even remotely original to me, but I'm I'm uh, bringing up things that are that are very wise words I've heard from much much better people than myself. But uh, I believe that we have to. Um, challenge developers to recognize that software development is not about code. Software development is about relationships and communication with people. The code is a secondary side effect of effectively working together to solve problems and effectively treating each other with mutual respect. And we're not good at that naturally. We're kind of good at becoming the sort of lone vigilante, like, oh, I'm going to tackle this thing, I'm I'm the ninja, I'm going to solve this problem, and not really realizing that every part of this need is better if it's collaborative.
1: Kind of looking at our, the software and our technology industry in general,
2: stereotypically,
1: you could say we're usually pretty introverted people, right? Like, we're usually not loud and very opinionated folks publicly. Right? Speak for yourself. Well, Richie is, but Richie's Hispanic, so, you know.
2: I was going to say, I don't think most people listening would ascribe to me uh, many characteristics of introverted nature. They don't realize that uh, the times that I would be very public and visible, say at a conference or something like that, um, that as soon as I got done with that, I went and found uh, dark, corner and sat alone for a little bit just to kind of like decompress so there there are definitely some introverted parts of me where being around people can drain some of my energy it it, it both pumps me up to be able to be with people and, and learn new things and inspire new things but then it drains me very quickly and there are times when I just got to go sit in a corner somewhere sometimes I'm going to, you know, it's not popular to admit, but sometimes I'm going to go sit in a corner and just kind of cry for a little bit because I'm overwhelmed by something, you know, that's going on or whatever. But, um, I'm not sure that the public persona of me, most people would attach to introversion. Um, but I, I think, I think one of the things that we all, one of the skills that we all need to get better at is introspection. Um, we need to be, deeper thinkers about ourselves. And I don't mean that in a negative way, like become you know, more of a critic of yourself. But I spent an awful lot of time thinking about myself and realizing that the things I used to think about and the, the things I used to think were true of my nature, I realized now never were. And I was uh, putting on a facade that, that wasn't true. So um, I think we need to exercise that muscle a little bit more. Instead of speaking out and telling somebody else uh, what they need to fix, you know, maybe work a little bit on ourselves.
0: So I have a, I have a question. So going back to the diversity question, so I, I think in, in theory, um, we all understand that we, pref- we, we need to get more diverse, right, in our, in our teams and uh, just in, in our interactions uh, in general. So how can we? Uh, let's just say we are a tech lead or or uh, some sort of hiring manager. So how can they uh, become more? Get their teams become more diverse?
2: Yeah, um, I would push back on that a little bit, but in a in good faith and say I don't think that we're going to find as much success if our goal is diversity, because it does start to treat, like I was saying before, it does start to treat people like they are a check mark on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, uh, diversity to me is something that happens when everybody has a shared ethic that we're all in this together, we're all figuring it out, we're all messed up, we've all had different paths to get here, and it's our job to make sure everybody around us is, uh, you know, nobody's being left behind, that we're all succeeding. If you can build a culture like that, a culture that is empathetic, a culture that is um, encouraged when somebody says, wait a minute, I I totally disagree. You know, imagine if you were in a team and, and you had you know ten people in the room and you're going around, and you're talking about this feature and nine different people have echoed the same thing, yep, let's do this, let's do this, and then one person in the room says, Whoa, 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 whoa. Totally disagree. This is completely the wrong way to do it uh we're off base. A lot of times if you if you think about that scenario, a lot of times people would be like, oh, that, that person's not a team player. Why can't they get on board? You know, the best way for our team to be effective is for us to all, you know, resonate on the same wavelength. And this person's always, you know, questioning things and always pushing back. Well, maybe that's a maybe that's a good thing. And maybe the best way to build a team that is going to represent a diverse set of perspectives is to make a team that encourages that culture that says every question that we ask and revalidate makes us better every time that we look at something slightly differently it makes us a better team it makes us a more well-rounded team so you could in theory and i'm not advocating this but you could in theory have a team of all white dudes that still conducted themselves with extreme amounts of empathy even though they might not be able to completely identify with uh, a, a black Jewish woman from Africa, you know, I'm just picking something, you know, even though they might not be able to identify with that, they can still conduct themselves in a way that is respectful and understanding that there's a lot more beyond their spheres and they need to, they need to, um, Put focus and attention on making sure that that person is is treated well with the software they create. So it's not about the people that are on it, but about the way those people approach everyone else. They need to be more empathetic. They need to be uh, to realize there's something much bigger than themselves that they need to bring into the into play.
1: Like I like to look at the location, right, and 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 seeing what's practical in the space that you're in. So if say I don't know. Let's say we're in Wisconsin. I've never been to Wisconsin, by the way. Let's say we're in Wisconsin, right? I'm assuming there's a large, popular, a large population of um, Caucasians there, right? So would it be would it be surprising, or would it be a bad thing if you go into a technology team and you know it's I don't know 95% Caucasians, right? But if we go to I don't know Jamaica. And we go into a development team in Jamaica. Yes, let's go to Jamaica. I agree. You know, I mean, you know, we could do a little away from the keyboard, you know, um, field trip. We go to Jamaica and we go to this. I bet it's
2: included on that invite.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, hey, let's all go, man. We have a good old party in Jamaica. But again, you go to, uh, because obviously, I mean, software is built all over the world, right? So we, we go into this development team and it's all black people, right? So. Is it is it fair for me to go into either team and say what well, your team is not diverse because your population just happens to have a high concentration of a certain type of person, or is it more is it more um, is it more reasonable for me to say well you know all of your developers have the same experience. Right. And they've they've all come from the same background or they've all come I don't know, they all went to the same school and they all grew up in the same neighborhood and they all lived down the street from each other. I mean that's a little bit different, right? Versus saying, you know, we've all come through and we've all learned different ways and we've all, you know, had a different approach to tackling the same problem. So now that we can collaboratively come together and kind of just, you know, make something different now.
2: Yeah, again, I I don't think that team I don't think that it's appropriate to try to say, this team is diverse and this team is not. I think it is it is appropriate to say, the actions and attitudes that are put forth, if they're a software development team, the software and the experiences that they create, the way that they market themselves, the way that they conduct themselves with customers, if that team is built up of all white dudes from Wisconsin, And they treat everybody as either you're a white dude from Wisconsin or you're not the same as me and you're and you're probably not as good as me. That is not diversity. There's not an output that is evidence of diversity. But that same team of white dudes from Wisconsin can conduct themselves with an uncommon level of perception of willingness to realize that their life experiences are vastly different than some other customers um they can put forth a an attitude and a set of actions that will inspire the notion that they are they are they are trying to be diverse in their um in the way that they conduct themselves uh but there's no question that uh that is harder for an entirely group, you know, team of white people to understand uh, the team in Jamaica, right? It's, It's much harder and I know that personally because I've visited a lot of different places in the world and I was embedded into these places. I went into India and I've been to Africa and I've been to various places in South America and I'm seeing entirely different cultures and entirely different situations than mine. The only thing that's the same is it still looks like JavaScript on the screen, but everything else is different. And um, what that taught me was, I could not have sat back at my computer in Austin, Texas and even remotely imagined that in my mind. I went and saw it, I was privileged enough to have the opportunity to go and see these things for myself, but that didn't give me an automatic, like, check mark, okay, I'm diverse, because I visited India, or okay, I'm diverse, because I did this. Uh, if it didn't change me, if it didn't cause me to start trying to treat people more openly, more respectfully, and to be more introspective of the, of the differences that I may have that have biased me in a certain way, then it was largely a wasted experience. But I think I can conduct myself in a way that produces a diversity of thought and opinion, even though I'm just one white dude from Austin, Texas.
1: So, Kyle, it's, we're getting close to, well, actually, we're a little bit over an hour. So I got to ask you the question of the show. What do you do when you're away from the keyboard?
2: Well. Didn't uh, see that one coming, did you? Yeah. yeah. Could could not have possibly predicted that. Uh, In all fairness, I haven't touched my keyboard once this entire podcast. So even though it's kind of sitting near me, I have been away from the keyboard. I haven't been tweeting or anything like that. Nice. uh, So what do I do when I'm not at the keyboard? Well... um, One of the things that I like to do is, uh, it sounds kind of silly and juvenile, but I actually really like to play ping pong. I also golf, but ping pong is kind of the thing that I spend more time on and mostly because, uh, it's really great exercise. And by play ping pong, I don't mean like I hit it around for 10 minutes. I mean like four hours straight playing. Um, there's a ping pong club here in my part of my city. And so I go once or twice a week and I play, um, I have a coach that I take some lessons from, and it's vigorous exercise, a ton of fun. Uh, so that's one of the things, uh, that, and every once in a while, if I get a friend to go with me, I'll go out and play golf. But those are two things that I definitely like to do. Uh, but I I would be super, uh, I, I think people would uh, make me turn in my membership card as a, as an Austinite if I didn't say, the best thing that I do when I'm not at a keyboard is eat Austin barbecue. <laughs>
1: You know, we've heard a lot about Texas barbecue, man. I need to
2: go back to Texas, it sounds like. You all need to come to Texas, come to Austin, specifically. Look me up when you're here and I'll I'll take you to the places that are actually the best and I'll give you the hint they're not the ones that you always hear about on the TV shows or, you know, the the travel sites. The those are great, but we got even better uh, barbecue that the locals know about.
1: So, done deal. We're coming to Texas and you get to come with us and we're going to go to Jamaica.
2: Yeah, uh, it sounds like a perfect (laughs) plan. I'm in. Awesome. Love it. Boom.
1: We'd like to thank Kyle for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast. And on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at JARS. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S.
0: You can subscribe to the show via the website on SoundCloud or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes it tick, sign up to our newsletter and you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away from the Keyboard. Next on Away from the Keyboard, we'll have data and
1: business intelligence expert, Jen Underwood.
2: But it's more of a cultural change. And one of the things, at least in the environment that I was in, was it was a very heavy dominated from Asia and from India where they have different views of women in those
0: countries. Uh, In fact, I think India is the top 10 worst in how they treat women.
2: They're they're expected to be subservient and not work. So when you have folks on H-1B visas that come in to the country, and they start working. They don't immediately change to the to the work values of the country that they're working in.
0: This has been long overdue, man. It's about time she got on the show. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we've been trying to get her on for a while, and uh, now she's she did it. She she got on, and um, it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, Jen Jen is definitely high energy. You know what I mean? So I think uh, I think people are gonna like it yeah i think so too i think she had a lot of really interesting things to say especially from you know someone who's been 20 years in the business and kind of seen it all from not just the technical side but also from the business side so tune in tune in bye-bye see ya We want to thank you for listening to Away From the Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com.
2: Hasta luego. So my, my secret, my black magic is to ask questions and to try to apply from my experience some intuition about if somebody else is presenting to me, I've done enough presenting that I know the mistakes that I make. They probably make some of those too. So where can I find those? And that's where I know that the question needs to get asked. Um, the other, the other thing about asking questions is that you never get a flat answer to a question that's the end of the road. Every single answer that you get does have an opportunity to ask a deeper question. And where most people are only looking for the first level answer, I'm always looking to go much deeper than that. So I always ask the follow-in question and the follow-in question to that and several levels deep. And pretty soon I'm off on some rabbit trail, but damn it, I know that stuff a little bit better than most people because I kept asking those questions i'd be remiss if i didn't um point out that the other secret to learning which isn't a secret at all many people say it if it was a religion i would be a disciple and a convert of it uh that that the best the the, you don't actually learn something until you teach other people uh every time you write a blog post you are teaching somebody something from what you're writing even if it's a persuasive like this thing sucks kind of a blog post. You're teaching people the mindset that you used to and the experience that you had to arrive at that conclusion. So I advocate that the best way to learn is to look for every possible opportunity that you can and make some opportunities up if you don't see them in front of you to teach the thing that you're learning.